life. What's the point? I wonder if that thrills you, that question. When do you find yourself asking that question in life? I wonder what it is that tips you over the edge to going, life, what's the point? Maybe it's when you work so hard and you're aiming for that promotion only to see it get taken by someone else. When you spend your hard-earned money on a new phone only to drop it and smash the screen. When you plough your time and energy into writing a report for a teacher or boss only to be told it needs changing. When out of nowhere illness or injury hits and you're left in bed changing plans. When you're woken up at 2am again to change a nappy, to feed. Or when again, yet again, there's problems with the children. You seem to be doing everything right, but you're just left asking that question, life? What's the point? I just don't get it. The book of Ecclesiastes expresses a similar feeling of frustration. Ecclesiastes is part of the Bible's wisdom literature. It, sat, it sits alongside um, Proverbs and Job. But generally, we like Proverbs more. We hear it preached more. It seems to have this nice orderly manner where if you do this, this will happen. If you are like this, this will be the result. But Ecclesiastes is not quite so popular. So much so that some people even suggest that Ecclesiastes adopts an atheistic worldview. That it builds up a picture of what life's like without God the whole way through, only to at the end say that there is a point to life. But actually, what we'll see as we go through the next couple of weeks is written with a Christian worldview, discussing what the Christian makes of the nature of this world. And actually, I think we're going to see that's really good news because Ecclesiastes is a real book. It's a gritty book. See, as we look at this question, life, what's the point? If you're a Christian here this afternoon and you've ever just been left with that question, what's the point? This book has answers. But also, if you're sceptical about Christianity, if you'd say today you have an atheistic worldview, firstly, you're very welcome with us. But this book demonstrates the Christian response of what it looks like to address this question. Life, what's the point? So, as we join chapter 1, it's probably helpful to give a bit of an overview of the context and structure of the book. Just have a look down at verse 1. Verse 1 is the editor's introduction of the main voice of the book. So, verse 1 and 2 sit outside of the whole body of the text, and then we come back later, at the end, to the editor's voice again. So, verse 2 is the summary statement. It's like a thesis. And the majority of the book is evidence put forward to support this summary statement. And then we come back to chapter 12, verse 9 to 14, where we have the kind of publisher's notes as he pulls it all together and summarises how we should live in light of what's happened so far. So then, verse 1, who is this main voice that we're introduced to? The words 
of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. We're not given a name, just a description. But see, from that and what we pick up through the book, we get all we need to know. And actually we can make a pretty good guess who it is by their experience described through the rest of the book. But for now, I'd like to call him the man who had it all. The man who had it all, and we'll see why. So we're going to see this afternoon the confessions of the man who had it all. Throughout the book, we learn more and more about this man, the teacher. They're described as having the resources to investigate life thoroughly, to try and work out what's it, what it's all about. In 1 verse 16, they excel in wisdom. In 2 verse 4, they excel in work. In 2 verse 8, they excel in wealth and pleasure. This is a man who has it all. Why is it important that we get to know who it is that's writing? Well, in order to believe what's being written, we want to listen carefully. And we want to be listening to someone who can back up what they're saying. Because if I were to say to you, look, I can guarantee money won't make you happy. You might be able to listen to me to some extent, but you're probably looking at me thinking, well, you definitely don't know. You don't have that much cash. <laughs> but if someone else came and stood before you, someone with a lot more money, maybe then you'd start to listen. As we read through the book, we see this character is pretty distinguished. The wisest, most accomplished, wealthy king of Israel. Goes, goes in search of everything, and yet writes a book like this. He's unable to control his life. He's unable to control his work and his wealth. He's unable to control his death. And in amongst this, he admits his emptiness and concedes that actually his view of life is pretty bleak and dismal. And actually, that kind of mindset we see really clearly in our culture, don't we? You don't have to look far to see someone who has it all, yet doesn't sit right with it. Here's Johnny Wilkinson. This is what he had to say, famous rugby player. To say I've played through four World Cups, two Lions tours and 91 England games, and a ridiculous number of injuries and other setbacks, gives me an incredible feeling of fulfilment. But by now, I know myself well enough to know I'll never be truly satisfied. Uh, Johnny Wilkinson is just one example of a successful person who appeared to have it all, but really felt empty. I could have given you many more. Some people who chase after intelligence, education, money. See, we're to view the teacher, this character, as someone who is able to back up with personal experience what they're saying. We're listening to someone who commentates on what it's really like to be in the midst of life, to look like you have it all, but to be asking the question, life, what's the point? But we'll see throughout that actually he responds with a Christian outlook on what's going on. But just have a look down in how we open with this thesis statement Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, it's not the most uplifting start to a book and a series. 
In fact, it's incredibly pessimistic. But it's crucial at this point that we understand this sentence as we look ahead to the coming weeks. Remember, this is like a summary statement of all the evidence that's going to come behind supports this. So it's important that we understand this sentence. And actually, the translation is really difficult. The word meaningless is translated from the Hebrew word um, hevel. Now, um, what that means in their language is like breath or vapour. So what we need to understand as we look at what it means to be meaningless, meaningless, is that this concept of life is like it can't be grasped. That's the picture that we need to understand as we look at this opening sentence. Meaningless, meaningless, it's like it just can't be grasped. To illustrate this, this morning I got the bubbles out to play with Jacob. Oh no! And it was working earlier. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! That's rubbish. Why? Life, what's the point? <laughs> uh, um, I got the bubbles out and it worked earlier. Now, Jacob loves the bubbles. I got, got the bubble stick out, started blowing the bubbles, and of course, straight away, Jacob's face lit up. The bubbles flying around the room, and he's looking at them. They promise so much as he looks at them, goes out to grab them, immediately they pop. He goes to grasp at what looks so enticing and amazing, yet in that moment, they pop, and they're gone. What do I do? Dip straight back in the pot. Immediately, straight again, Jacob's enticed by the awesome wonder of the bubbles. The same thing happens over and over again. Yet the reality is that he goes, as he goes out to grasp at the bubbles, he just can't get hold of them. That's the picture of what it is. Meaningless, meaningless. It's like we just can't grasp what's going on. Now, to be clear, the teacher isn't proposing that life lacks meaning and is utterly pointless. But as humans, the, the, word, the words that they, he uses through the book is life under the sun, which is human life, the way we experience it. As humans, life under the sun, we're unable to grasp at its meaning. And actually, our experience is often trying to grasp it in the wrong way. Life is an enigma. And remember, these aren't the words of an atheist. In fact, sometimes our knowledge of God makes it all the more difficult to work out what's going on in this life. Sometimes that leaves us asking the question, life? What's the point? So, maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, that might intrigue you. That doesn't always seem to have the answer. We'll come back to that in a minute. But remember, these are the confessions of the man who had it all. Life, we just can't grasp it. No one's mastered life. The second confession we see in the passage is life, we go through painful toil for little gain. Just look at down as the poem continues. Look at verse 3. What do people gain from all their labours at, at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, 
and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. What is gained? What are we working towards? Well, there's change, but there's no clear progress. Life is hevel because there's no clear gain. Ultimately, everyone dies, so all of that work, what do we get? Look at verse 3 again. What do people gain? Ultimately, you can have as much material wealth, wisdom, work in this world, but only for it to go somewhere else. It doesn't satisfy in itself. And then verses 4 to 7, you see that cyclical nature of our human experience. Only so clear in our, in our world of work, where we get up, go to work, and so easily just do the same thing, go to bed, wake up, go to work, go back to bed. And every single person looks to find significance and purpose in their work. You notice that, don't you? People want to change the world, make forward steps. But the reality is, we're pretty insignificant. We all leave little dent in the world. That's the confession of the man who had it all. Leaving little dent in the world. Elise and Jacob and I were strolling along the beach in um, Vigo uh, last week in Spain. And um, we were walking along, and there was a big, wide open beach. And we got to a point, and I saw this sculpture. Now, normally you don't call a sandcastle a sculpture in the sand, but this really was a sculpture. It was a bit like this behind me. It was three monkeys like that with the, you know, that famous thing. And um, it was unbelievably ornate. It was so incredibly detailed. And I was walking along. I just wanted to get closer and closer to it, just to look at the detail. And I noticed more and more things as I got closer. And I noticed the basket similarly just in front, with just a few coppers in the basket. And I looked around, and I couldn't see the artist anywhere. I was staggered. I walked away, and it bugged me for so long. That amazing sandcastle. Who was the artist? I'll never know. But then, as I was thinking about it more and more, I thought, what if I'd have just jumped into that sandcastle? <laughs> I, I was pretty tempted there as I was with Jacob. I'd have put him down and he'd dived in. What would he have done? Like, surely he's somewhere. The artist is, wants to guard that sandcastle. And then I thought about it even more. And I thought, actually, you know what? That person... They must have to leave their artwork behind and every single night the sea would wash over the sand and we've all built a sandcastle before. We know that immediately its place remembers it no more. It's gone. It's flat to the ground. This person, for such little gain, just a few coppers in a basket every day, must go to that beach and design that sculpture and that's it. Look at verse 8. The reality is that actually we still never have enough. The eye never has enough seeing, the ear never enough hearing. 
you'll never, ever have enough in your pension. We'll never have had long enough holidays. I'll never had, have had enough taste of success. You'll never have enough time away from work. You'll never have enough time to work. Your sandcastle will never be big enough. Can you identify with that? So much hard work and not feeling satisfied, wanting more. Even as a Christian, my work is frustrating, you might be thinking. Flicking between feeling like what I'm doing is the most important thing in the world and feeling like I'm not getting anywhere. Feeling like my work amounts to nothing. Life. We go through painful toil for little gain. The third confession of the man who had it all. Life, we all return to the ground. Look at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Here's a little quiz. There's going to be six individuals coming up on the screen. With the person next to you, you've got one minute to see how many of the six you can name and tell me their position. Name a notable position. You're playing against the person next to you. Okay, there's a minute. Um, who's bottom left? That it was. I had it on my watch. Um, bottom left, who's that? Queen Elizabeth. B uh, top right? Uh, George V. Um, uh, middle here? Usain Bolt. Uh, next to him on the right? Anyone know that? Harold Abrahams. Um, top left? Anyone get that? Jeff Bezos. And bottom right, John D. Rockefeller. There you go. So I'm guessing most people got either 50 cent or below. <laughs> A lot of belows. Now, what's remarkable about these pictures is that these people are the corresponding people for, uh, for so this year's 2019, the corresponding people of 1919. So 100 years ago, Usain Bolt's um, Abrahams was the fastest man in the world over 100 metres. The Queen, um, the monarch at the time, was George V. Um, Jeff Bezos is currently the richest man in the world. 100 years ago, that was John D. Rockefeller. Now, these pictures, they hold exactly the same position from 100 years ago. Yet, we look at the screen and we barely know who they are. Just 100 years ago, some of us don't even know who the ones this year are. <laughs> These people are the people that our culture holds up as the most important. Yet, in just 100 years, they're not even remembered. This is what Psalm 103 says, For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. 
That's the reality. That's even the confession of the man who had it all. These are the confessions of the man who had it all. Life, we just can't grasp it. Life, we go through uh, painful toil for little gain. Life, we all return to the ground. Now, if we just leave it there, this is the most depressing start to a series. (laughs) If we just stop here. But this is the beginning of a book that accounts the Christian worldview in amongst this very frustration. If we don't recognise the way he sets it up, we won't know how to pick out his obvious references to God and relate to him throughout the book. Maybe as you listen to these confessions, you're relieved, thinking, I'm glad a Christian can feel like that sometimes. I'm looking forward to how the rest of the book pans out. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this afternoon and you're surprised to hear that this kind of assessment of the world is in the Bible. Maybe you're thinking, surely this world and this Christian experience isn't meant to be like this. Surely there's actually more hope now for the Christian. Well, let's just have a look at Genesis 3 to see how these reflections are right, even in a Christian worldview. So we're going to bring up Genesis 3 on the screen, and I'm going to read it. And this is God speaking to Adam and Eve at the very beginning, just after they'd um, sinned, and this is what he says. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. See how these three reflections of the preacher fit so clearly into Genesis 3 there? They're reflections that happen because this is the way the world is. They're right reflections because this is what God promised. Why is life frustrating? Because God promised it would be hard work. Why is it so fleeting? Because God promised dust. But God promised deliverance from a world like that. We see the Bible storyline unfolds to point to this man, Jesus, who comes to deliver his people from this curse. And the triumph of Jesus on the cross that we've been looking at over the last four weeks offers people forgiveness from sin and freedom from death, the curse that Genesis 3 talks about. And Jesus' work gives to those who trust in him new birth into a living hope that we saw in 1 Peter just before. It means that now those who have life in Jesus can live spiritually in Christ with God, with every spiritual blessing. And when Jesus returns, he will bring physical restoration to all things and make this a spiritual reality. But, until then, we live in the experience of a Genesis 3 world. We live asking questions just like that. A world of frustration, of toil, of groaning, of asking what's the point. And the book of Ecclesiastes 
helpfully and honestly commentates on how the Christian navigates a Genesis 3 world where those observations are accurate. And yet, importantly, there is a hope. And there is purpose even within this frustration, hope of ultimate redemption. Because now, in Christ, God has revealed to us the big picture of the storyline that brings all things to redemption. This is what Romans 8 verse 20 says. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That word frustration that it talks about is the same word as the word hevel. That's exactly what we're talking about. This frustration of this world now is exactly what Jesus will bring to an end. What does this mean? Well, it means that we're to shift our viewpoint and we'll see how we do this through the book. Shift it from life under the sun, the constraints of human life in a human world, to life in the sun of God. Life under the sun to life in the sun. We're to stop living grasping at bubbles. And actually, our experience will be transformed. See, even that person on the beach who is sculpting monkeys is their full-time job. They are so clear that they see that in their day-to-day life, don't they? They see Genesis 3 in action. The frustration of sweat and toil as they build a sandcastle only for it to be destroyed, to get little gain, coppers in a basket. Their experience, so easily life, what's the point? But even that person can find joy in life, recognising both the grace that God gives even within these frustrations and the hope of deliverance that Jesus will bring. We can be real about the frustration of life as Christians and there's no need for that frustration to disappoint us. But if we keep trusting in Jesus, even through the things that happen that we don't expect, if we keep pursuing Jesus when times are tough, if we keep our eyes focused on when Jesus will bring all things to redemption through himself, We'll see in coming weeks exactly what that looks like, how we cope in the day-to-day. In a minute, we're going to sing together a song called There is a Redeemer. What does it mean to redeem? To buy back. And we know that Jesus' work has brought back his people from the power of sin and death, the, the reason for the curse in Genesis 3. And as we look at Ecclesiastes, Some of what we'll have to do is remember that Jesus will ultimately redeem all things. So that while this world is frustrating now, one day his people will be redeemed from the frustration of this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this honest and gritty book. Thank you that it addresses these questions that we have.
Father, please would you help us in amongst the frustration of the curse of Genesis 3 to have our eyes lifted to the deliverance that comes through Jesus now and will come ultimately in eternity. Father, please would you have our eyes focused on Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.